As I said, as I was preparing this week, like you, I'm sure, my heart was uh, deeply burdened, deep, <laughs> deeply burdened by many of the difficulties that one dear and precious brother to us all is going through right now. And I begin to think about it. He's here with us, though not physically. And I was thinking about the difficulties that he's facing. And I was thinking about many other difficulties that Christians around the world are facing today. Difficulties of persecution for remaining faithful to the gospel of Christ in a difficult place. And I was thinking even about the many difficulties that we face as believers just in this fallen and broken world because of sin's effect upon our bodies and our circumstances. And what I want you to know is none of those difficulties take God by surprise. As a matter of fact, he calls for us to even rejoice in difficult days that we face here on this earth. And he calls us to rejoice in him during the difficulties because we know according to his promise and his word that we are never alone when we face these trials in life. God is with us. He is near. He is near. And he has even ordained the difficulties in our life, according to his word, for our good and for his glorious praise. So we need to keep that in mind amidst all the many rocky difficulties that we're going to face in life and that we are facing even now. We also need to remember that God has placed among these rocky difficulties, many precious gems. He's put them there in these rocky places in our lives to help us better see his eternal blessings against the black backdrop of present suffering and sorrow. The Apostle Paul helps us find those hidden gems. He helps us find the hidden gems of God's blessings amidst suffering. And only going through suffering can you sometimes discover these and, and what's amazing to me is the Apostle Paul understood this practically himself. He's not just writing a theological novel when he writes to us from the book of Philippians. He's writing from an experience of walking with a faithful God in the midst of difficult circumstances. You can turn to Philippians. I know that some of our men are preaching through Philippians, and I'm not going to attempt to try to preach through Philippians. We are going to survey Philippians today, Lord willing. But in the context of what's going on here, understand where Paul is and what's going on during this difficult time in his life. As he's penning this book, having it penned, he is in prison for preaching the gospel. He is in prison. And yet, amazingly, by, by I believe, God's grace alone, in this entire epistle, we never hear the Apostle Paul complain. We only hear him rejoice. He's rejoicing in the many blessings that he has discovered and now wants to uncover for all of those who are reading this letter and for us today. At the end of Philippians chapter four, verses four to nine, he's going to call us all as God's people to rejoice in the Lord always or in every circumstance. And that call flows. You need to understand this when you read Philippians and you come to this call to rejoice in the Lord always. Understand that it flows out of the river of blessings that are found throughout this epistle. So we're going to survey those this morning, Lord willing. And we're going to survey them as a means of edification and comfort to you and to me. And that seems to be what Paul is doing and why he ends on this note at the end of the letter his overarching goal and desire in writing this seems to be to, to draw out these blessings in order to encourage and edify and equip Christ's people during difficult days, like the very days he himself is going through. So I want to follow Christ and I want to follow Paul's example in trying to do that this morning as well as we look here beginning in verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Oh, and the arena of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I love verse eight. Verse eight flows out of the promise there in verse seven about the peace of God that will guard our hearts and our minds. We need both guarded and then he says, think about these things. And here's what I would submit to you this morning in application. These things point to Jesus. This will give you peace in the midst of difficulties. Whatever is true about Christ, whatever is honorable about Christ, whatever is just about Jesus, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable about Christ, anything excellence, anything worthy of praise in Christ, let that reign over your hearts and your minds and it will help you get through the difficult days ahead. I think that's his emphasis in that. And I believe what he's doing here as he ends this way is he's telling us that all true rejoicing in the midst of good times and bad must flow out of pondering what God provides for us in Christ Jesus. So what I think he's going to do and and what I want to outline here for you today is this, that Paul's going to help us reflect and ponder on these things by reminding us to consider five, five blessed reasons to rejoice in the Lord Always five blessed reasons to rejoice in the Lord. Always we're going to go back to chapter one to begin to look at these blessings. The first reason I believe that Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord is revealed in Philippians one, three to eleven. Now, here's where you need to pray for me at this point in the message. I am not wanting necessarily to exegete every verse in these passages because we're going to read a lot. So pray that I can be restrained here. But I want to read this to get you to see the big picture. This is why we can rejoice in the midst of these difficult days. It's revealed here to us in Philippians 1, 3 to 11. Here he's, he's, he's encouraging us to rejoice in the blessings of, number one, the Lord's preserving power that is at work in all the saints. This is actually comforting the Apostle Paul as he is suffering in prison. And he's suffering more because he can't be with the Philippians. Yet he's knowing that that even though I can't be there, the Lord is near to them. And he who began the good work in them will bring it to completion, whether I'm there or not. So he's encouraging us to rejoice in this blessing of the Lord's Preserving power. And we see that blessing that causes Paul to be comforted right now. It is the very blessing that's causing him to persevere himself in times of difficulty and distress. He says earlier when I read in chapter four, look at what it's doing in me, what you've heard from me, seen in me. Let this be an example to you. Let this comfort you. The Lord is preserving him when he could be distressed. Listen, I've pastored for almost uh, well, over 25 years. And when you're suffering, your pastors suffer with you. And we want to be there with you. And our hearts ache that we can't. And I think that's going on in the Apostle Paul's heart, even though he knows that the Lord is near, who's a greater comforter. But he's being preserved and he's persevering because the Lord is at work in them. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Wouldn't that be an amazing gift to be able to do? Every time I pray for the saints at Sovereign Grace, this is what I want to pray. As I remember this work that God is doing in you, all my prayers are filled with joy. That's what he's saying to them. It's filled with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now. Now, here's what I'll submit here at this point before we get further into this. God's preserving grace that sustains us until eternity and through eternity. That, that, that preserving grace 
has an immediate effect on our lives presently. Paul's able to write what he's about to write after this because he has seen the evidence of God's saving grace. And he is confident that if God has saved them, God will continue to work through them and in them until the very end. And he's already seen that work being begun. And so in verse 6, he writes, based on their partnership and their faithfulness and his joy, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a glorious assurance this must have been to them. They want Paul there, but he's saying, hey, look, I know this without a doubt because of your partnership. The fruit of your regeneration is evident. This is the fruit of one that was starting this in you. He is working through you. And he will bring it to completion. What God inaugurates, God completes every time. So he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Then he goes on to say, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled or controlled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This hope that he had in verse six is what's causing him to himself persevere in times of difficulty. He is not afraid that they will fail in the work that they've been called into because God called them and God will get the work done through them. And he is confident of that and he wants them to be confident of that. He's saying to them here in reading this that by, by, by making this power evident in your lives, by God doing this evident work, I am comforted amidst my suffering. God's power will complete What the Apostle Paul wanted to see happen, even in his life and his work. God began the good work in them. God will bring it to completion, to the praise and glory of God's name. This comforted Paul and caused him to persevere because he knew they were preserved. This is a blessing to Paul, a blessing to the church, that even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, the Lord is preserving them by his power and for his glory and their good. Now, that blessed power... I think is revealed and and very clearly revealed in scripture in many ways. But a couple of ways I want to point it out to you today is this. It's not just this blessed power of God unto salvation. It is that. But it's the blessed power of God throughout sanctification and unto glorification. It's not just a one time powerful event that happens at our redemption. It's a continued work of sanctification that ends in glorification In the very end, when God starts it, God will bring it to completion. If God hasn't started it, you can't bring it to completion. But when God starts the work, when God does the work, he does it to the praise and glory of his name because it displays the supremacy of Christ's atonement. His work was sufficient, not just to save us, but to complete that work in us, to bring praise and honor to his name on the last day. Let me show you a couple of places that... Reveal this blessed power, places that you're familiar with in this church. John 6, verse 37. In John 6, 37 to 44, God's power, his dunamis, is on display. His dunamis is what's drawing us to Jesus, to salvation. 6, 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Wait a minute. Doesn't say they might or they ought or they might try hard to. But he says, no, all that are given to me will come End of story. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's the completed work. God draws us by his power through Christ And he's going to complete it through Christ's atoning work at the cross. It is done for our justification. He was raised for our justification. And one day we will be raised even physically with him. 
Verse 40. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them. Do not grumble among yourselves for it says verse 44. No one can come to me. No one has the ability the inherent power, there's no way they're unable to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Let me submit to you this. If you're drawn by the Father, you're saved by the Son. There is no hesitation to say that. That's what he's saying here. You, you couldn't come on your own. The Father drew you. He dragged you out of that, that abyss of sin and he placed you at the cross with Christ. And you're going to be rising up with him on the last day. That's what he's saying. So the blessed power of God is on display in our redemption, our salvation. But it's also on display in our preservation. Because God's love, not just his power. You, listen, we can't, we can't divide the attributes of God up even though we try when we do a systematic study. God is the sum of his attributes. So God's power and God's love aren't two different things. They're one thing manifest through this work of salvation and preservation. But Romans 8 points out the blessed power of God's love that preserves us in Christ. Romans 8. I love preaching to the choir because you guys know exactly where I'm going. But I do pray that it's a fresh reminder this day when you're facing difficulties. Verse 6 of Philippians is an amazing place to comfort your heart. But look at how this is going to work. It doesn't just work through the raw power of God that he began in us. It works all through the love of his son who was sacrificed for us. Romans 8.28 makes it clear that whatever things we're going through in life, if we're called by God, if we are elect, if we are his children... Whatever things we go through in life are being used to conform us to the image of his son. When you go through difficulties and you begin to cry out to the father and you seek his will, not your own. Guess what? You're looking a whole lot like Christ. And without the difficulties, you might have not done that. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Good ultimately here is to magnify Christ. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a golden chain of redemption here. What then, in light of this, if all things that are happening in our lives, those, the lives of those who have been drawn by the Father to the Son, if all these things happening in our lives are going on, and yet God is using it to conform us to the image of his Son, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What, what a great comfort in the midst of difficulties. God has done the greater thing in redeeming you through the work of his Son. Can he not keep you in the lesser things, the difficulties in life? He can and he will. He does it for the glory of his name and for our good. He says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all things pertaining to salvation? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, declares right. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one and nothing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, even if we're treated like our Lord Jesus Christ, nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. He is with us in the difficult times. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that includes creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this blessed power that's at work in drawing us is the same blessed power that's at work in God loving us and preserving us to the very end. When, when Philippians 1.6 is combined with these passages, I think it gives us ample reason to rejoice in all circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord. We need to be able to do that before the difficult days come. So knowing these truths helps guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when the difficult days come. And saints, let me just remind you of what D.A. Carson says. If you live long enough, you will suffer. You will suffer. So be mindful of the suffering that's coming, but be mindful of the Savior who's came and the preserving power that comes through his atonement. We can rejoice even in distress and difficulties because it tells us here in in Philippians that that God is preserving us. He's his preserving power is at work in us for our good, even in the difficulties like Paul faced. And what, what I want to reinforce in that is this. Understand something, saints. God's power is the fountainhead of all our blessings in life and for eternity. And, and, and that truth is what springs out of all scripture. It, it springs and shows us the truth that we see continually in every epistle we read. This truth is the spring of all our blessings and hope in this life and forever. God's sovereign and preserving power should be our comfort today when we see things going astray in our brother's life, in our lives. It should be our comfort when life is fraught with trials Death, heartache, and difficulties. Spurgeon said this, When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. His preserving power is that pillow. You may go through the fire, but he's with you. It will never fully consume you. It will sanctify you. It will make you more like his son, but it will never destroy you. When you're going through difficulties, you need to remember this. You must remember that the blessed hope of God's preserving power is is never going to be separated from his redeeming love in Christ. He not only just preserves you to tolerate you, he preserves you because he loves you. He has sent his son to die for you. There is no doubting that you're going to persevere to the end if you're in Christ's love. You will come through every trial triumphant in Christ. So whenever you're tempted and you're going through this trial of life and this difficulty and you're tempted in that trial to think maybe God just doesn't love me anymore. I feel this like it's discipline. I feel like I'm distressed. I don't know if he's disciplining me. I don't know if this is just the, the natural effect of sin in the world. And I don't know. I don't know what to do because I'm not sure that this trial, this difficulty is from God. You can know this for sure. His love will be with you if you belong to him. So just stop when that happens. When you begin to doubt God's love in the midst of difficulties, stop and recall the promises that you have in Christ. The promises that call you to be able to rejoice because Jesus not only gave his life for you, but Jesus is interceding on your behalf continually. His blood is always a a fresh, fragrant aroma in the Father's nostrils in our place. His work is what secures us. And then as you go back to Philippians, as you recall that this this river, this, if you will, flood of preservation, it flows out of God's love in Christ. Understand that it flows into a river, a river of God's good and providential plan that doesn't always look like ours. That plan may include much suffering in life. And just know this, if you suffer, even what seems to be unjustly in this world, our Father cares. As a matter of fact, when a son of his was suffering one time for preaching the gospel from the Old Testament to a bunch of hard-hearted Pharisees, and Stephen was being stoned to death, 
the Lord Jesus in one of the only places you're going to find the New Testament stands at the throne when his child is suffering for his namesake. So he cares. He cares. And that suffering is even intended to do good. Think about who heard Stephen preach. A man we now know as the Apostle Paul. Look at the second reason we can rejoice in difficult and trying times. Back in Philippians 1, 12 to 20. And then we'll jump down to 27 and 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened, what's happened to me, his arrest, his imprisonment, what's happened to me has really served. So he's reiterating what he's just said, that he's comforted and by this blessed preservation. It served to advance the gospel. This is not the plan that I would have chosen, okay? I would not have said, maybe I ought to go to jail so the gospel will go forward and I can't be in that church to help. That's not the way it would work in my mind. But this was God's plan. His providential plan. He says it served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, but by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's an unusual statement. In light of what they see happening in me, even through this difficulty, they're now emboldened to speak up and even face it themselves. Some indeed, among them, he means, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, not with pure motives, he means, motives mixed with selfishness. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, jealousy, trying to gall him. What then? What do you do? You can't be there. There's some guys taking advantage of you not being there. What then? What do you do? Do you complain? Do you send out the Philippians to run this guy out of town that's doing this? No, that's not what Paul does. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Because look at the confidence in this next statement of God's providential plan. This blessed providential plan. Look at the confidence. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope, assurance, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul was prepared to die as a part of God's providential plan. And so here, when we read this and we jump down to 27, he wants to convey to them, you need to be ready to face this too. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Here Paul's reminding us and the Philippians that we can rejoice in the blessed hope of the Lord's providential plan in difficult times. He's telling us here it's the Lord's providential plan that's granting him hope in these times himself. Hope in times of suffering and trials as he labors for Christ, yet can't do what he really wants to do. Yet he trusts that God is at work even in spite of that, doing something even more glorious than that. He knows that his suffering and ours and the saints at Philippi, he knows that that suffering will be ultimately used to serve Christ's people and sanctify their lives and ours as well. We're also reminded of that blessed hope of suffering amidst trials, according to God's plan in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4. You know, there's there's a heretical false teaching that TBN advocates and many Pentecostal and word faith and charismatics like to lie and deceive people into believing that if you're a Christian, you're going to be blessed and prosperous and you should have all the good things in life. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
If your reward is all the good in this world, you've lost the greater. You've lost the greater. This world is not my home. I am just traveling through. My treasure is Jesus, and he is in heaven. Take your goods, take your money, take your prosperity, and let it burn with you in hell. Give me Christ. Paul understood that. He was a prosperous man before God called him to be an apostle. Look what it says here. Look at the the comparison, his understanding of the providential plan of God in leading him through suffering for the glory of God's name. But we have this treasure, 2 Corinthians 4-7, we have this treasure in jars of clay, clay pots, cracked pots, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. A clay pot would be fraught with all kinds of distortions in it, pinholes, literal cracks. Most people couldn't see, but when you put a candle inside of it, the light would shine through the cracks and the faults so that the surpassing glory of that vessel wasn't the vessel itself, but what was inside of it. He says the only way that this is really going to be seen, though, is it's, I'm going to have to go through the kind of suffering that actually points out that the power that works in me is greater than me. It's God who is at work in me. So in verse 8, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. (laughs) You should circle all the but not statements in this passage. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We're living our lives for the glory of God, whether it kills us or not. And if we die doing this, then God is exalted because Christ is being proclaimed. Verse 11, for we who live are always given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised Jesus, the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So in light of what God's providential plan is and his suffering, he says this in verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. He's saying this light, momentary affliction, which is heavy in our comparison, our understanding. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They're eternal. I think this this passage is very clear that Paul understood our suffering as God's people for his glory in this world is being worked out for the good of our lives and the glory of God's name. I want you to know something in thinking about that. Because when you're in the midst of suffering, it doesn't feel that way. I know that. And I know you don't feel that way when you're going through suffering. Listen, when a baby dies, when your spouse gets cancer, when your marriage falls apart, you don't feel that God is present. You don't feel that there's hope in this providential plan. But you know what? Your feelings have to bow a knee to the authority of God's word. Our feelings must bow to the truth. And here's the truth. God will not waste your suffering. He will use our suffering to magnify his grace by the way we do suffer. Trusting in him, relying on him, running to him. So, saints, when when we suffer for the gospel, or when we suffer just as believers in a sin-cursed world, we need to stop and remember this. Remember this. God is absolutely sovereign over every circumstance. God is absolutely good in every circumstance. Every circumstance is ordained by God, and he is both sovereign over them and good in what he brings to us through them. The fiery trials that come into our lives, according to God's word, when you read 1 Peter, for instance, 
Those fiery trials are not meant to destroy God's blood-bought people. They're meant to sanctify us. The sovereign purpose of suffering in part, in part, because I don't know the whole, but in part, according to the word that I can see, is to remind us that we are pilgrims on this broken planet. We are ambassadors for Christ, and he suffered, did he not? He was righteous in all his sufferings. And if he suffered, then we should not be afraid that when we suffer, God has abandoned us or left us when we suffer for his sake or as his children. He will not waste our suffering. God has a divine plan and purpose for our suffering. Part of that plan would be to use trials to magnify his grace in our lives and use the preserving power of Christ to, to help us remember how we have been redeemed and what that redemption cost Christ. And so we could rejoice in knowing we belong to God because of Christ's incarnation. And our trials are also ordained, I believe, by God, according to First Peter, which you can go there. They're ordained by God to burn off the dross of sin in our lives. You know when we need that? Especially as people who live in 2021. This world is a really comfortable place to be. The saints, it ain't heaven. We need suffering to burn off the dross of the ease we have in this world. We need suffering to help us to flee from sinful temptations And run back again and again to Christ. Instead of trying to find our pleasures in this world and our existence on earth. May the Lord take everything from us, but give us Christ. Suffering may take everything from us, but it will always leave us Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Jesus through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is, notice, not like the pleasures of this world, not like the carnal things that we seek after now. This inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept, guarded in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In in this, in this, he says, you rejoice, though Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here's why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with doxa, with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Paul's calling us in Philippians to rejoice in the blessed hope of the Lord's providential plan that even takes us through the fires of suffering and difficulties. That God has a good purpose in it. Look at the third reason we're called to rejoice in the Lord always in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 16. Here, here Paul is going to, he's going to instruct us on how to rejoice. It's an interesting thought to put into your mind. He's telling us how to rejoice. Well, he's going to illustrate it for us in his own life already, but he's going to illustrate it through pointing us to Christ. He's going to tell us how to rejoice by humbly responding to the Lord's blessed pleasure in our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how you're going to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Look to Christ's suffering. He came not to be served, but to serve us, right? To give his life a ransom for us. Look to Christ. This is going to be the blessed pleasure of your life. And this will cause you to rejoice when you are called to humbly serve And magnify God's love in Christ. Verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count count others more significant than yourselves. That one principle of verse 3 should radically change us as Christians. It should eliminate bitterness, bickering, and pettiness. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be asserted, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Just just notice that therefore comes after this glorious humiliation of God's son, who is the Lord of Lords, the Lord that is going to reign on the earth one day, who came first to serve and give himself a ransom. Therefore, because of this, as you have always obeyed, keep on doing it. And he says, here's how you do it. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That simply means cultivate or display what God's planted inside of you. If you belong to Christ, his spirit resides in you. The Holy Spirit will direct you, conform you, shape you, change you. And he's saying, in light of what God has done to humble himself by becoming a man and taking our place, you need to display what God's done in you. By cultivating this, bringing it out, it's not hidden in the shadows. It is out so all can see. And when it's brought out where all can see, guess what? It's going to change you and I. The good pleasure of God was in the work of his son. And that work is being manifested and magnified through the work in the saints. And here's what it looks like. Verse 14. You want to display your salvation? You want to work out your salvation? Here's how you do it. It's real practical. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He wants us to understand something here. The Lord's pleasure to magnify Christ and his work. The Lord's pleasure in that is being manifested through us as we're being conformed more and more to Christ's likeness. And this granted Paul a a joy-driven motivation for himself to work out his salvation, put it on display. That's why he's suffering. That's why he's serving. That's why he's giving his life unto death to be Christ's ambassador. Listen, sanctification, holiness, and obedience, those are all the, the fruit of regeneration. It's the joy of the Christian to work out our salvation, to put Jesus on display through our transformation. That's what he's saying here. Paul sought to rejoice in and magnify the Lord's pleasure in Christ by seeking to serve the church, even while he was presently suffering. He says in one place, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. Right. He's wanted to give his life to make the gospel of Christ manifest. He's he's wanting to display the out resurrection, the resurrection power that resides in him. This is how we rejoice. We rejoice by rejoicing in the blessed pleasure of Christ. We rejoice by displaying that pleasure in the way we pursue holiness. Paul wants his pleasure to magnify Christ to be an example to us and to the saints there at Philippi. Because Paul understood something about this. Paul understood that his humble service would, would openly reveal the work that God had begun in him. And he knew that that would motivate and encourage the saints as they were suffering. Now, pastorally, I want to point that out because many of the things that we face in life, many of the struggles we deal with in life have to do with we have failed many times as Christians to serve like Jesus served, to follow the commands of Philippians 2. And many times because of that, we, 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 we feel like since we've failed to do that, when, when times of distress come, we almost in our flesh begin to think, well, if, if I'm if I'm not serving like I should serve Jesus and difficulties come, God is just angry with me. God is displeased with me. Listen, you, Christ pleased the Father on our behalf. You can't displease him. He's as pleased as he's going to be in Christ. You can repent. You can rejoice in that gift of repentance. 
But you can't try to serve harder, do more to please God. He's already pleased with his son's work. You can rejoice in it. That's what we're called to do. But you may feel like when you're, you're struggling, when things are going wrong, you may feel like, well, it's because I have failed so often as a Christian to be a faithful witness, to serve the church, to help others. Listen, I don't, I don't want you to be deceived by that. Maybe you ought to do more. Yes. Do more out of the joy of your salvation. Don't do more out of the guilt of condemnation. Look to Christ. He pleased the Father. Rejoice in that, and I am hidden in Christ, in God. I am able to do what I can do to glorify him. And when I fail, he is not angry with me. He's not punishing me. He may discipline me, but it's always for my good to make us more like his son. So when you see your trials as signs of God's disappointment, and you're tempted to believe that maybe God doesn't love me as much as he used to, maybe I've failed him too often, and and his power may not be in the midst of my suffering, so I don't know if I need to out... Do something like I've not done it well enough. I need to outdo others in doing this work to serve. I want you to be at peace. I want you to be at peace. And I want you to be motivated by grace. Not by law. Not by fear of condemnation. But by assurance of salvation in Christ. Let me just remind you that Jesus has already obtained God's eternal favor and love for you. And that favor and love was as eternally secure as it's going to be because it was secured at the cross of Christ where he hung in your place. It was secured so that you can now rest in Christ and rejoice in Christ. And then, then as a result of resting and rejoicing in Jesus, then you can work out your salvation with joy and praise and thanksgiving. Even when you fall short, you can run back again and again to the cross and give thanks because Christ never fell short on your behalf. So when you fail to serve like Jesus, just stop and remember. Remember God's blessed pleasure in his service, because that will lead you to joy-driven service of others. The fourth point, fourth reason we should rejoice in the Lord is found in Philippians 3. I promise these will go faster. Philippians 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore... My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Then he mentions something very odd. I entreat Udiah and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord as if in this church there were issues between the saints. Never saw that coming, did you? See how practical some of these things are. Rejoice in the Lord and the joy of the Lord that we have in Christ should even affect your disagreements with others in the church. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These aren't two unbelieving women causing problems, bringing in false teaching. No, these are two Christians who still need sanctification. They're saints. Their names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He's telling us here in this section, he's reminding us. That we should rejoice in the blessings of the Lord's peaceful promise of the gospel. Even when troubles increase. Even when you have bickering in the church. Rejoice in the peaceful promise of the gospel. And one of those promises that are very clear here is in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your, your ability to think clearly in all these circumstances, when you have false teachers coming in to stir up strife earlier in chapter 3, when you have even bickering in the body, he said, let your reasonableness, your gospel-mindedness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. When troubles increase from outside the church, from false teachers in the church, from our sinful, te- sinful tendencies as the body of Christ in the church, 
You need to keep in mind what he says in verse 5. The Lord is near. Now, hermeneutically, we could go into a whole lot of things about what this means. It could mean this. It could mean that he's saying, hang in there. Christ is coming soon. Yes, it could mean that. It could mean that. He also may mean, hang in there because you're going soon. I mean, one or the other. Persecution's coming. But I think that we can apply this promise of Christ's nearness, the Lord's nearness, to our difficulties in life presently. If you look back there, you can see that he says Christ made us his own. How did he do that? Well, he, he came near. The Lord is at hand. The Lord came near already. The Lord is near with us presently. He, he came near to reconcile us at the cross. And he's not going to be far from us now that we are his in God's grace. The Lord is near. He's near when we need him in life. He's near in the, the minute things and the big things. Saints, listen, I lose my keys and I pray that God helps me find them. That's a minute thing. But I'm getting old and it's harder and harder to find stuff. But I trust in him. He's near. But he's near when you're broken hearted. He's near when you go through anxious moments. He's here and he's near. He's at hand when you go through the fires of affliction. Look at Psalm 56. Psalm 56. He's here with me when I'm trying to be done by 12 o'clock. It's not going to happen. Maybe he's here comforting you at that point. Psalm 56 is a serious thing here to think about. Since Christ has made us his own, he is near us in every aspect of our lives. Psalm 56, verse 3. When I'm afraid, when I'm anxious, when I'm nervous, when I'm scared, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Jump down to verse 8. Look how much he cares. Look how near he is. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are, are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is near. I told a dear brother this week that... Uh, And I borrowed this from John Knox, but one man with God is the majority. The Lord is with us and we can call upon him in everything we go through in life. And he hears us because he cares, cared enough to send his son to die for us, cares in the midst of the trials, the small things, the big things. He's always there. He's also there to those who had confessed, like the psalmist, that they can't get out of this fear on their own. They got to put their trust in something greater. There's nothing else they can rely on but God. Those who can do that, they can have assurance that the Lord will be near in the midst of those frightening and difficult times. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. He is transcendent above us. Then he says this, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. He's eminent. That transcendent eminency was made manifest at the cross of Christ. He dwells in a high and holy place. He's other than us. But he also is with those who are broken, those who are needy. Here's what he's here to do. He's at hand to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Saints, we can call on him. He's near us. As our brother goes through difficulties, he's near. He's near He's near. He's present in our fearful times. He's here. And we should not have to feel anxious and afraid in these times of difficulty. But when we do, we can always come back to the word of God, the promised peace that is ours in Christ, that God is near, so near that we can call upon him in prayer and thanksgiving and supplications. Philippians tells us our hearts can cry out to God because Jesus has won his ear for us for eternity. Fifth reason we should rejoice in the Lord is revealed in Philippians 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. Listen, I, I came up here with three pages of notes. Normally I have like five. It always happens this way. I'm, I, I do not apologize, though. 
because the Lord is ministering to me, and I pray he's ministering to you. Listen to this fifth reason we should rejoice. In verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, yet, it's a reason to rejoice here. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit, fruit of Christ's love. It increases in your to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And to our God, he says, and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here, here, Paul gives us a very important reason to rejoice always. We are to rejoice in the blessings of the Lord's precious People who are among us right now. The Lord's people granted Paul comfort in great times of trial. And we, like Paul, should rejoice in the Lord's precious people that are surrounding us even here this morning. Listen, God, God provides the blessed gospel partners beside you because you're incomplete without them. You need each other. In Romans 12, we're told there that we are all one body, joined together in Christ, linked together in Christ, in order that we can carry one another's burdens, in order that we can weep with the weary, that we can rejoice with others in their victories, that we can pray for each other in time of difficulty, and we can reveal the love of Christ presently and physically through our partnership together in the gospel. So we need to rejoice always in the Lord's precious people that are here among us even presently. You need to stop and remember to do that. God's blessed people, understand this, God's, listen, man, I read Colossians and I read Philippians and I recognize there's some people that are irritating to Paul and to the church. That's like, they're like that here, right? I mean, I'm one of those irritating people. And, and yet, yet, we are brought together because we need one another. I need you to help me be less irritable and irritating. And, and I need you to help me. And I need to recognize that, that I'm also here to help you. And that God brought you into my life to show me how much he cares for me in life. I need your struggles to humble me. I need your prayers to strengthen me. I need you to rejoice with me in the truth. To embolden me. So don't allow anything to stop you from this, from rejoicing in the saints, from rejoicing in God's gift of the saints that are here beside you and seeking them out to rejoice with you, to pray with you in in good times and in bad. They're all eternal gifts to us from our good and sovereign God. So there's reasons to rejoice, blessed reasons to rejoice throughout the book of Philippians. And let me let me point out an illustration really quickly as I end. Of a man who understood this, he understood this last reason to rejoice in ways that I can't even comprehend because I couldn't do what he did. Jonathan Edwards pastored a church in New Hampshire for over 25 years, I believe. And toward the end of that time, some people, some factions within the body began a disagreement about the way he handled the Lord's Supper. And as a result of over 20 years service to that church, they, they, they ejected Jonathan Edwards from that pulpit. They called him to resign. And I've read the sermon that he preached, his farewell sermon, and you should read it. I commend it to you. But in that sermon, he recognizes their disagreements, their divisions. But he says, it's okay, saints. One day, all those disagreements will be removed when we gather around the throne of God and sing his praises. And until that day, I'm here to rejoice in the people that God's placed in my lives, even in the midst of difficulties. And ironically, even though they had rejected him and ejected him, 
This shows you his love for Christ and Christ's people. Even though they had rejected him and he was so well known that no man dared take that pastorate after him. They were so intimidated by his presence there. His ability to articulate and preach and care for people. No one dared to take the pulpit as an interim pastor. So who do they ask? Jonathan Edwards to be his own interim pastor. And he humbly and lovingly accepted it. And he served there to carry them through until someone else could be established. Saints, that, that's something that I think that we need to be humbled by in our consideration of this blessed reason we can rejoice in the partners that we have around us. So here's what I want you to do. He was, he was resting in this, and I want us to rest in this. He was resting in the truth that the work that God had begun in New Hampshire in them, that he would one day complete. So, saints, here's what I want us to do. I want us to go on rejoicing in the saints around us, both the weak ones and the strong, because we're in those categories. I want you to go on rejoicing, because as I said earlier from this text, it is God who works in us all, both to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. So let's give thanks for that and rejoice always. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity to rejoice in your word, in your work, in your promises, in your blessings. Lord, I do pray that you would wash us with this truth, that you would sanctify my mind, my heart, my actions, and that you would make Christ most glorious through our reaction to the truth and our joy-driven sanctification in it. I pray that you fill your people with your spirit and truth. Send them out to the world to magnify Christ through evangelism as well as their own sanctification. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.